good day, and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 102 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. More on that at the end of the show. Now, I know that hearing we're taking a closer look at a policy trend that really took hold in the latter part of the 20th century might send a normal person lunging for the off button, but please bear with us today because we may even discuss prison riots in this segment. Joining me today is my colleague Tim Mischling, who did the research on a recent blog post at crcmich.org on the nuances of privatization in public services. Welcome, Tim. Hello. So first, a quick discussion of terms. Now, some people are strict constructionists on the word privatization and use it to mean solely when a government entity is turned over to the private sector to reform and run, like British Petroleum under Margaret Thatcher. But here, we're going to use it in a looser sense to describe the practice of using private companies to do work that was once done by public employees, which is also called simply contracting out. So chances are the lunch ladies at your kid's school no longer cook hot dogs and baked beans in the school kitchen. It's more likely that they reheat and distribute food from an industrial catering company that does nothing but prepare, heat, and serve school lunches. It's more economical all around, and if the kids mind, they mainly show it by throwing most of their lunch in the trash. Now, Michigan Prison Food Service has also been privatized with some truly mortifying results. Why don't you catch our listeners up on some of the bad things that happened when the state contracted with Aramark Correctional Services in 2013, Tim? Sure. Well, I have to imagine that anyone who hasn't heard at least a little about this uh, was probably living under a rock. But (laughs) for those people living under a rock that somehow still have access to listen to podcasts, I can go over the details. Um, Okay. Aramark Correctional Services began a $145 million contract uh, over three years to feed Michigan's 43,000 state prisoners, and that began in December of 2013. Uh, The reports of problems emerged pretty quickly after that. We saw multiple reports of maggots in food. Um, I don't know why we always start with the maggots. It's like a horror film. Because maggots are memorable. (laughs) It's a horror film cliche with the wriggling and it's really kind of gross. There were also reports of foodstuffs partially eaten by rats, uh, food dropped on the ground, food thrown in trash bags and then pulled out to to be served, um, mold contamination and other, other pathogens. There were shortages and unauthorized meal substitutions, uh, which occurred somewhat frequently. And it's important to note that when you think about prison meals, it's largely the sole food source other than maybe snacks from a commissary. And so there's a particular need for meals to be nutritionally and calorically sufficient. Okay. Uh, Problems with Aramark didn't only include the reduced food quality. Uh, There were also numerous Aramark employees caught smuggling drugs and other contraband into prisons, I think. Most of us, regardless of partisan bias, can agree that as a general rule, when you send people to jail for drugs, they probably shouldn't continue to have free and unrestricted access to the drugs when they're behind bars. Um, Yeah, that's wise. (laughs) uh, Sending people to drug or to jail for drug offenses is a whole different discussion, of course, and maybe that's a future podcast. Yeah, Um, okay. 
Uh, beyond that, at the Ionia Correction Facility, uh, there was a corrections officer that discovered three hollow point .22 caliber shells hidden on a sealed breakfast tray, which uh, was followed by searches for whether there was a gun to go with that. Um, wow. And that was uh, hidden in a tray going to a unit housing high security prisoners who eat in their cells. So that wow. caused a little bit of a disturbance. So okay. when we say contraband, there's there's a lot going in. Yeah, um, I'll say. And... Uh, Exciting for maybe our HBO fans. There were also a lot of sexual encounters uh, that were reported between prisoners and the private food service employees from Aramark, uh, as well as now we have Trinity. Um, and that happened several times and at different facilities. And there was also an attempted hit uh, where an employee of Aramark working at the Kinross facility tried to hire an inmate to have another inmate killed. Wow. Again, wow. <laughs> so uh, all that to say, I I'm listing a lot of things and I'm really scratching the surface. These weren't just a few isolated incidents. Um, Aramark had around 132 workers uh, banned from prison property during its first full year of the contract, which is about a third of its workforce. And there were continual stop orders after that uh, going throughout the duration of the contract, which is part of the reason that the state decided to terminate that first contract uh, early Based on that sketch you've just given us, I think we can assume that this was not a success. Now, assuming we have at least a few listeners who really don't care if prison food is not haute cuisine, um, why don't we just talk a little bit about the bad things, the serious complications that can come from subpar food service? I mean, let's let leave out the drugs and sex for now. I've always read that food is the number one morale issue in prison. And again, we probably think in terms of, well, who cares if they're having a good time or not? They're, they're in prison, so they should, they should be miserable. But, you know, when we're talking about things that can start uprisings or riots behind bars, you know, food has a lot to do with it. So why don't you, you know, tell us why prison food should be held to even a low level of quality? I think those are all fair points. Um, I also think, however, there's a difference between trying to get one of Michigan's prison chow halls to claim their first James Beard Award and expecting prison kitchens to provide food that's safe and nutritionally adequate. Yes. Stopping food shortages and food contamination is a far cry from calling for fine dining. Yes. Uh, this is really a public health issue, first of all. Uh, there was a study published in the American Journal of Public Health last year that found that incarcerated persons suffer a disproportionate number of outbreak-associated foodborne illnesses. Better food safety and oversight regulation and correctional food services could decrease these outbreaks. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important... Beyond contamination issues, uh, poor nutrition can have long-term consequences for the health of individuals and communities. While Michigan's prison food service contracts main caloric maintain caloric requirements, uh, I think we should remember that calorie counts aren't the sole measure of nutritional sufficiency. A 2,000-calorie Twinkie diet is really quite different from 2,000 calories of vegetables, grains, and beans. Yes. It's also worth noting that declines in food quality including an increase in heavily processed foods and the prevalence of foodborne illness in prisons aren't exclusive to uh, prisons like those in Michigan that have private food service. Right. So last year there was a class action lawsuit filed against the Oregon Department of Corrections alleging that four state prisons there served food that was unfit for human consumption leading to some foodborne illness and other health issues. 
Um, but all of this, I think, suggests the need for stricter cleanliness and food safety standards in prisons with clearly established responsibilities, enforcement mechanisms. And what we do know about the Michigan contract is that interviewed correctional officers uh, noted that the prison kitchens were always very dirty. There were complications over, you know, questions of shared responsibilities and who needed to clean up, who needed to get the cleaning supplies. And so those types of complications can be amplified through the contract process. So it wasn't only bad food, but they were badly run kitchens I, I, as I, well. I think that's fair to say. Okay. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, bringing up riots, Food quality can also be a prison safety and effectiveness issue. Uh, there have been reports not only in Michigan, but in other places like Kentucky that have linked violence in prisons to complaints over food or to food shortages. Uh, you might remember an insurrection at Michigan's Kinross facility back in 2016 caused damages that were around $900,000, uh, which kind of whittles away at the savings that we might be getting from a private contract when we have those damages associated with it. Um, and among the complaints, food quality was one of the main things uh, cited by prisoners, as well as quantity and shortages and hunger. Okay. Um, so, so this is, we're not just talking about guys who don't, and men and women who, who just don't like macaroni and cheese, right? I mean, we're talking about, this is, these are, these are serious issues behind bars. We're, we're talking about spoiled meat and right. food pulled out of trash and served and served in smaller amounts where people are slowly succumbing to hunger as well as getting sick and vomiting and having sure. outbreaks of diarrhea and other, other symptoms. And we're not only responsible for keeping these people behind bars and feeding them, but also for their health care. So if you have a an outbreak of food-borne illness behind bars, that's going to be expensive on another front, too, which is treating all these people for it. Yeah, you, you don't really eliminate costs. You just shift them around. Well, that's really interesting. I used to work in Indiana during the time when the former mayor of Indianapolis, a man named Steve Goldsmith, cut the municipal budget and payroll significantly by contracting out services. But he also managed along the way to make public workers more efficient by forcing them to bid against private companies on projects. A little competition can improve a workforce. Sure, there are plenty of examples where contracting out has worked exactly as it's supposed to. Uh, we kind of saw this as a managerial strategy and governing strategy emerging uh, back in the 1980s with something called the new public management, which you probably don't care about unless you're really <laughs> geeked out about public administration. But I've never heard of it. Long, long story short, uh, the idea that government should be run more like a business and that citizens are consumers. And the, you know, the goal was to improve government service, to reduce bureaucratic inefficiencies that we saw in the 60s and 70s and that classic kind of idea of big government. And so Right, the this Soviet level of full employment in, uh, in in government, and so you end up with like fifteen guys to patch one pothole, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, th yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the vision we have in our heads, um, and I think privatization largely is so ubiquitous that people don't realize if how how many things are privatized and how much sense that makes. And because when it happens and it happens quickly and successfully, it doesn't make the news and people go about their business and get good services. Right. So and, you and give me some examples of some of those things that are probably privatized in the municipality where you live. Sure. So things like information technology, legal services, certain human resource functions, uh, custodial services, as well as probably some building and construction functions. These are all things that uh, 
there's an existing private sector demand uh, from other businesses and in some cases individuals, then it maintains a healthy and competitive market. And so governments can contract with private businesses. They can sometimes contract with one another uh, laterally between different municipalities and villages. They can share services. They can contract with the county. Uh, so there, this happens quite extensively in this sort of networked relationship of different organizations typically works out well. Okay. So in Michigan's prison cafeterias, then, we have a very good example of when privatization doesn't work. Now, without going too deeply into the weeds, can you brief us on some of the considerations that policymakers should consider before they do more contracting out? Sure. Well, when you ask a policy wonk to brief you on something like privatization, you're risking you know, a discussion ad nauseum of rivalry and excludability of goods and natural monopolies and all these things that we like to let's, have fun let's, with. Let's try to keep it uh, in civilian language for now. Sure. So in, in base terms, I think with the prison food service, you see a couple failures, one of them being that really for prisons, there's only a public demand being exerted for the good, so that demand is solely coming from the state. I think there are probably people in all of our neighborhoods who would like to lock up their neighbors and, and put them away, but we don't have that as you know a, a private sector marketplace commodity. And so it, there's a monopolization of service where only the state is paying for it, um, and that requires better contract management to, to control the services. I think beyond that, there are choice issues where prisoners who are you know, in a prison, they don't have a choice of where to go to eat. So if restaurant A is serving bad food, there's not a restaurant B. It's just right. starvation or, or sickness. Okay. Relative to contract management, uh, there are a variety of different managerial tools that have to be used uh, to ensure that contractors are providing good service and doing so effectively and, and efficiently. Uh, so you need to consider shaping the work and defining the work of contractors, having enough flexibility to make mid-course corrections, having the ability to obtain frequent and audited measures of contractor performance, uh, being able to provide performance-based incentives and disincentives. And we, we did see some of this with Aramark in terms of penalties and increasing worker pay in the middle of the contract. So it's not that we didn't try this, there just maybe wasn't enough. And I think that also raises the issue that it's important to consider the type of service and the context for service delivery when you're making a decision to privatize something. Right, okay. Um, so on that point, I would say engaging in privatization or really any other governing decision, if you're doing it for ideological rather than pragmatic or managerial reasons, it's probably not an advisable course of action. These things should be carefully considered and mapped out well ahead of time before doing them. Um, As you put it in the blog that you wrote, this is a tool. It's not it's not a panacea. It's not a it's not a solution. It's not the the right tool for every situation. Sure, it's a really effective tool. Um, but if you just assume that in every case contractors are better and faster and cheaper than what you already have, sometimes you're going to make some some missteps. And a final consideration I would offer is that public programs rarely are entirely reflected on a ledger. And even when we're talking about saving money or increasing costs, that can often leave out the, the human costs that are innate to public policy. So maybe we should wrap this up by mentioning how much money the state saved 
by privatizing its prison food service to Aramark? Um, it's the most recent number with Trinity because we obviously we had costs with Aramark going forward, um, I believe amounted to about 11 million a year. Which is really not that much. Not in, the, not in a state budget the size of Michigan. No, I mean, it's, it's substantial money, but that $11 million in savings doesn't account for the manifest costs that we've discussed and other problems, and it doesn't factor in things like, you know, $900,000 worth of damage in a prison riot. Right, and the, and the, the well, I don't know, the, the public relations nightmare of, of having the state mentioned in the same breath as, you know, maggots in the food, so. Yeah. And the challenges put on correctional officers as, as well as prisoners, and, and it's important to remember we, we have this abstraction of, of prisoner, but these are, you know, often citizens of Michigan or people who were born other places that made a misstep, but that doesn't rob them of their humanity or value as people. Or rights. Or there rights. I think, I think an important thing to consider whenever you talk about conditions in prison is that almost everybody who is in prison now is going to be out at some point. Yep. And you, you, you want them coming out in the best possible shape for going forward with a different way of life. So, Yep, some people may view these prisons solely as a mechanism for punishment, and from that perspective, the gastronomically aggrieved are simply enjoying their just desserts. But the threat of punishment is an exclusively effective mechanism to prevent criminal behavior, and so our public, I think we rely on the correction system to provide humane and protective custodial care, rehabilitative opportunities, and reentry assistance for offenders. Uh, hungry, mistreated people are probably not going to be cooperative with those goals. Probably not. Okay, I think that's a good note to end it. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Okay, right now I'm joined by Craig Thiel, our Director of Research, to discuss the topic of the hour at this time of year in Michigan, which is to say road conditions and road funding. Now, Craig, you just published a blog at crcmich.com on PA 51 of 1951, which is to say Public Act 51 passed in 1951, which has a great deal to do with the condition of Michigan roads right now. Can you just sketch it out? for our listeners, what it is, how it works? Right, so Public Act 51 of 1951 is the main mechanism by which transportation revenues in the state are divided up among about 600 different road agencies. That includes the State Transportation Department, as well as county road agencies, and local uh, road agencies like your cities and villages. Uh, Public Act 51... Uh, collects all the money, and then through a series of formulas, the money is distributed uh, among levels of government. So the state government, counties, and localities all get a fixed amount of, of the transportation revenues, gas tax, vehicle registration taxes. And then once those levels of governments get their allocation, then Public Act 51 further divides the revenue among the individual units. So uh, if you could picture a spider web, a complex spider web, um, and then layer another spider web on top of it, that would be the visual for the listeners, the spider webs being the formulas on top of formulas. Um, so the money goes in at the top, and you kind of crank the, the formula, and the money comes out at the bottom for the road agencies to do uh, repairs, uh, repaving, uh, winter maintenance, 
uh, full reconstruction of roads. And, and Public Act $51 are the majority funder for our, uh, definitely for our state system, but also for the local system, the local roads that most people are, are used to riding on on a daily basis. Okay. So when we talk about $175 million supplemental uh, spending bill, which the governor signed this week, we're not talking about $175 million going to the roads that necessarily need it most. First, it has to be whacked up to the tune of what? 39% for the state, 39% for all the counties. Right. And then 22% for... The cities and villages. Cities and villages. So that $175 million is going to be spent from Copper Harbor to Monroe. Exactly. And the one hundred seventy-five. million supplements the ongoing transportation revenue, which is about $2.3 billion going into the system. Sure. So it's about an 8% bump, which uh-huh. isn't small by any stretch. But when you kind of sprinkle the infield uh, across the entire state, you're sending money, as you mentioned, from Copper Harbor down to uh, Lenawee County, from the west side in Grand Rapids, all the way over to Detroit. And you're doing it on basically a equal basis. You're not prioritizing how you're spending that money. There is some uh, part, there there has to be at least one part of this formula that accounts for the fact that two-thirds of the state's population lives in southeast Michigan, you know, another big chunk in west Michigan, and very, very few ahead of, say, or north of, say, you know, Saginaw Bay, or relatively speaking, right. I should say. Um. Within the allocations among the individual units, so the county allocation, more money proportionally goes to the higher population counties and more money goes to the higher population cities and villages. Sure. That's correct. But that first allocation, that 39, 39, 22% has no basis on, you know, you know, right. population. It's basically a division between the state and the localities. And in that picture, the 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 allocation doesn't resemble road uses at all. So um, the uh, state highway system uh, is is proportionally smaller in terms of the number of miles on the state highway system um, compared to the local road system network. Uh, but the state highway system carries the majority of the vehicle traffic, including almost all of the commercial traffic in the state. About 50% of that traffic uh, 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 is on state highways, but they only get 39% of the total funding. Right. So there, there's some disconnects both among the levels of government, uh, and then when the money flows down to the individual road agency allocations, it's not based on the use of the the highway system. It's based on things like population, which are right. proxies for yeah. um, highway use, but they're not true measures of highway use. Okay. So what we have here is a system that is on its face fair, and I'm making air quotes here, fair, because it does indeed spread all the taxpayer money across all the state. However, realistically... Um, I think the sta- the roads in Copper Harbor are probably not in as dire condition as they are in, say, Macomb County right now or uh, Ingham County. So what are the chances of this law ever 
being changed to reflect that. And, and I'll just say that we both just came from an infrastructure panel over at the state chamber uh, with two northern Michigan legislators who thinks there's nothing wrong with Act 51. Right. So I think Act 51 and those formulas we talked about work really well if the system's being funded to the, to the extent that it should be. In other words, that we're basically just maintaining the system that we have and everything is, is, is in close to good condition. The problem is, is a good portion of Michigan's highway uh, system, both the state-level system as well as the local-level system, is well below good and is in almost in a crisis condition. Yes. And uh, Act 51 doesn't do a good job of identifying where the crises are across the state and then allocating the resources accordingly. What it does a good job of doing is spreading the money equally a, a, among communities right. across the state. And that assumes that the system is kind of in a just a maintenance kind of mode. Right. But we're in a crisis mode. This $175 million that's going out this week is premised on there being a pothole crisis. And using Act 51 is probably not the most efficient method for allocating those resources if we want to deal with the crisis. In a crisis, exactly. I mean, when you go to an emergency room, there's this medical term called triage where they, you know, the person with the spurting of, of arterial bleeding gets seen by a doctor more uh, faster than the guy with a vague stomach ache, even though the stomach ache ache guy may have gotten there first. We're not doing any kind of triage on our roads here now. Not with this $175 million. And, you know, unfortunately, the politics are such that Whenever you start talking PA-51 and you're talking about those 600 different uh, road agencies and changing it, there would be winners and losers, and Nobody. no one no one wants to be a, a loser to somebody's winner, and, th- and they'd rather accept half a loaf of bread uh, than no loaf of bread at all. Right, and nobody wants to go back to their uh, home district and say, um, congratulations, you know, uh, good news, folks. The the roads in Lansing are going to get a lot better. So. Right, right. When you travel down to Lansing. <laughs> when you travel down to Lansing. To see me. Exactly. Now, you know what this kind of reminds me of? This is sort of an echo of what we talked about a few weeks ago with school funding. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of the, right. the equi- equity and adequacy. This right. is a, a an example of an equity-based formula that right. is inadequate to the needs right now. Right. So, I mean, this is... When we look at state government and its relationships with locals, we talk about state revenue sharing. And, and right. the idea behind that is that the state has at its disposal some efficiencies in collecting taxes on behalf of locals and then distributing them to locals. The question becomes, should we distribute the resources back to each community based on where the, the taxes came from? Right. That's one way we could do it. Uh, should we do it on an equal basis, uh, equal per capita, mm-hmm. or should we, and that would be a second method, a third method would, should we factor in some level of need? So in the education, triage. yes, right. triage, in the education context, we think of the kids who are the neediest in terms of their educational um, uh, requirements, whether it's, you know, early childhood, whether it's their English from, language uh, learners, English right, language exactly. Of, in, the, in the road context, it's What's the condition of the roads in Community X relative to Community Y? And right. if, if the roads are worse in Community X, you know, a revenue sharing that's based on need would send more money to those that community to deal with its roads than Community Y. Right. Um, and it's a it's a push pull definitely uh, in the education 
uh, realm as uh -huh. well as the uh, transportation realm. Uh, you know, if one community with a fixed pod, if one community gets more, there's only so many dollars to go around. That means another community gets less, and that's that's where the politics of revenue sharing. Um, whether it's schools, whether it's general revenue sharing at the state level or roads, right. really become very messy in Lansing. And that's why you called uh, uh, PA51 the third rail of Michigan road funding politics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One last question. How many average citizens even know the role that Public Act 51 pay, plays in the condition of the roads and streets they drive on every day? I don't think they know uh, much at all, um, and I think they probably care less about the formula, right. it, it, really, and it, they care about the roads getting fixed, right. and uh, if the roads in their community uh, need attention, they're asking Lansing to, to address it. Lansing's not being truthful when they respond and say, well, we have addressed it fully. Yeah. What they have done is they've raised taxes and they've put more money in the top of the formula, but what they haven't done is changed the formula to, to address the, the most uh, needy roads, the worst condition roads in the state. And to do that, you'd have to open up Act 51. Exactly. Uh, and the time to do it, quite honestly, is when there's additional resources to distribute. So mm -hmm. when we pass the gas tax and the vehicle registration tax and the uh, funding from the general fund for roads is going to be about 1.2 billion some of that could have been used to kind of migrate to a different formula and then reduce the you know the negative effects that would be on the losers when you adjust the formula but there was no talk of doing that the the talk was largely around you know just raising the revenue and running it through this PA51 formula. Exactly. The third rail. Okay. Well, thanks Craig. That was a fascinating and illuminating discussion. Take care. Safe travels. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource and all of our papers along with blogs, op-eds and other resources are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. <music>